Hi everybody, and welcome to episode number two of Lighting a Candle for Democracy, Australian Politics from 1967 to 1977, the Whitlam years. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the Canberra region land on which much of this podcast is based. I pay respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal Nation, both past and present, and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast today. Secondly, I just want to apologise for delaying in getting this episode out. I've been quite busy with other things and um, I found this uh, work on this episode really interesting uh, because of the research, the extra research that I've done has been quite interesting and I've managed to gather up a few more facts as well. Anyway, um, in our first episode we spoke about Australia's political history from from Federation through to the post-war period. This week we're going to talk about the events of 1967 that would destabilise a government that was comfortable in power and would lead to the power struggle that would result after the, after, after the disappearance of its Prime Minister in the ocean of coastal Victoria. But firstly, I've just decided, I decided to break up this year of 1967 and the problems that the Holt government had into two separate episodes. In this episode, we're going to talk about the government's rapid drop in fortunes over 1967. In particular, Harold Holt himself and his government struggles to manage issues, particularly the VIP affair, and the effect that the new leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party, Edward Gough Whitlam, had. In the following week will be part two, where we'll talk about the, the third reason for the government's drop in fortunes, which was that feud between John McEwen the leader of the country party and the minister for trade and the deputy prime minister and Billy McMahon, the Liberal Party deputy leader and treasurer and the divisions that, that would fracture from the government resulting from this. In 1966, Harold Holt had led the coalition to a landslide victory over Labor. The coalition government had a record majority up to that time of 40 seats in the House of Representatives. What made this victory even more remarkable was that the coalition had been in power for 17 years. Holt had been the logical successor to Menzies. After being a rival to Menzies in his younger years, Holt proved to be for the most part a loyal deputy to Menzies, with perhaps the possible exception of 1941, and he was also a very competent treasurer. Holt also had a genuine understanding of Southeast Asia and its issues. He would advocate for Australia to shift its focus from Europe to the United States and to Southeast Asia. This may not seem radical now, but in 1967, with a country that still had strong ties to Britain, it was actually radical. Holt was a genial, friendly man who appeared to have a real genuine bond with people. He was a different sort of leader to Menzies in this regard. His affability with Australians and a better understanding of Australia's region seemed to set him apart from the previous generation. He comes across as a genuine and kind man with a charm that he, used to, that he was able to use to build up strong relations, relationships 
with Australia's neighbours to her north. Holt's natural ability was with, definitely was with foreign affairs, particularly when it came to meeting with leaders from other countries. And his openness was also strongly evidenced in the domestic sphere. He was far more open with journalists, holding far more regular press conferences than Menzies, who actually had a genuine contempt for most journalists. His consensus, Holt's consensus approach to leadership was certainly not a bad thing. According to Holt, his leadership style was based on being, and I quote, close enough to, be, to, be, to, to, to the team to be part of it and on the basis of friendly cooperation. He was a committee man who was genuinely committed to working with others, including cabinet, before making decisions. The Liberal and country parties were in, were in control of a government that was at least on the surface, stable and united with an economy that was growing with negligible inflation and low unemployment. The Packer, Fairfax, Fairfax and Murdoch media empires may have flirted occasionally with Labor, but they still held strong, strong in their support of the coalition government. So what happened? Why would, why would Howard Holt, with all these advantages, have such a difficult year in 1967? Well, the fact that Holt was elected unanimously as a new leader to replace Menzies in 1966 was symptomatic of the lack of leadership alternatives inside the, inside the Liberal Party. Holt's most notable policy commitment during his time in power was the Vietnam War. His tripling of Australia's military commitment and introduction of conscription would occur early in his prime ministership. This, along with the all the way with LBJ statement made by Holt, would be the high watermark for his time as prime minister after he led a crushing defeat to the ALP in, 19, in the 1966 election. But the landslide defeat over Labor in 1966 had been fought against a Labor Party led by the ageing Arthur Corwell. Corwell, the old warrior, had his greatest moment in 1960 when he came within one seat of defeating the Robert Menzies-led uh, coalition government. But he would never recapture this sort of popularity with the electorate. Corwell would make the fatal mistake of finding the 1966 election on the issue of the Vietnam War. With the war only in its early stages, it proved to be a disaster for Labor. It was unlikely that his successor, though, Gough Whitlam, would make the same mistake. But the coalition government, buoyed by, the, the, buoyed by their election victory, became complacent. The government would struggle with issues, particularly the Voyager Disaster Royal Commission, the VIP Flights Affair, and a few between the country party leader and the deputy leader of the Liberal Party. As Prime Minister, Harold Holt would struggle to stamp his leadership on these crises and find resolutions. The Liberal Party's gains at the 1966 election had actually increased the number of backbench MPs who took a role close to being actually in opposition within the government. These MPs would be known as the Mavericks. It included James Killen, Billy Wentworth, John Jess and Edward St. John. For some of these backbenchers, the years in government that the coalition had spent in power had given them a duty to provide some, provide some opposition to what they perceived as being poor decision-making. 
On February the 10th, 1964, in Jervis Bay in New South Wales, Australia, the destroyer HMAS Voyager would sink after colliding with the aircraft, aircraft carrier in Melbourne. 82 lives would be lost. Due to the scale of the disaster, a decision was made to hold a Royal Commission shortly after the disaster. The conclusion from the Royal Commission when released in 1964 would produce an adverse finding against the captain of the, of the Melbourne, Captain Robertson. It would be a controversial finding that would be challenged, particularly by backbenchers such as John Jess, who would campaign for the findings to be reviewed. This has provided further impetus by a statement from the second in command of the Voyager, a Lieutenant Peter Cubbon, who alleged that the captain of the Voyager, Duncan Stevens, had been, I quote, been served alcohol before the collision. But any review of the original findings would require a second Royal Commission. Holt had inherited this continuing thorn in the government's side but it is now up to him as the new Prime Minister to find a way forward. By March of 1967, five backbenchers in his own government had already seen Holt in person, requesting that a second inquiry be opened. The Liberal Party was highly divided over the issue, particularly between the backbenchers, particularly between the backbench who had pushed hard for a second inquiry and the Prime Minister and Cabinet who strongly resisted the call. On 10th of May, on the 16th of May 1967, the issue would finally be debated in Parliament. It would prove to be a bad day for the government, with the government, with the divisions on the issue within the within the, within the government finally coming to the surface. Indeed, Harold Holt had, according to John Jess, had said that members, and I quote, of his party had the right to bring before the House matters which they felt or should be raised. Jess in his speech before the House on the matter will give a strong advocacy for the new inquiry to be opened. The Attorney General Bowen, though, and the Navy Minister, Don Chip, would argue against it. It was very unseemingly for the government to be, really, to be revealing open wounds on the subject, but the worst was yet to come. Edward Sinchin, the member for Warringah, was giving his maiden speech. We'll be hearing a lot more about Sinjin later on, but now he would be supporting another judicial inquiry to reopen the Voyager case. By this stage, it was after eight o'clock at night, and Holt was beginning to lose patience. He would make a bad decision when he actually interrupted Sinjin's speech. This may not appear to be serious, but this was, this was Sinjin's maiden speech. And for the Prime Minister, to be interrupting the maiden speech was a very, very bad look. Just two days later, Holt, under intense pressure from his backbench and from the press, caved in. There would be a second inquiry, and after three months of deliberation, the previous findings against Captain Robertson were largely overturned. And the findings against Robinson was largely set aside. The backbench Liberals, who had campaigned for months 
and even years to clear Robinson's name had been finally vindicated. But Holt had allowed it to drag on for far too long, and when he did finally cave in and hold the second inquiry, he would appear to be weak. The next problem for the government in 1967 would be known as the VIP affair. The issue revolved around the use of a RAAF or Royal Air Force, Australian Air Force squadron of planes known as Squadron 34. And it was to simply, was this, this fleet of aircraft and the purpose of it was to transport the Prime Minister and other VIPs, particularly international ones, but also other VIPs around the country on official business. The Minister for the Air Force, a Mr Peter Helson, was, was responsible for the approving the use of these aircraft. Unlike today, flying was a novelty for most Australians. The image of politicians and their families flying on planes funded by taxpayers would always attract attention, but particularly in this era. On the 31st of March 1966, the veteran experienced Labor MP Fred Daly would ask would ask a series of questions on the 31st on the uh, on the, about the use and cost of the VIP flights over the last year. The questions were: Number one, does the Prime Minister maintain a special aircraft for the use of Prime Minister for the Prime Minister and VIP? Question number two. If so, what VIPs other than the Prime Minister use this aircraft during the past 12 months? And number three, in respect of each flight during this period, what was A, name of the VIP who used the aircraft, B, name of any other passengers, C, the destination, D, the cost, and E, the purpose? This is a lot of detail. But ironically enough, the question had been asked by Daly not to try and embarrass the government, but to actually embarrass his own leader, Arthur Corwell, and who was arguing with at the time, who had used the v and who had used the VIP plane to travel to Perth in November of 1965. The question was finally the question, which was on notice, was finally answered by Harold Holt on May the 13th, 1966. By this time. Daly had made up with his leader Corwell and had lost interest. Holt's answer included information on who had used the aircraft, including a number of dignitaries, including Arthur Corwell. But with daily losing interest and the list of VIP supplies, this supplied, this appeared to be the end of it. But <laughs> the devil was in the detail. The third part of the question, the names of any passengers, was not provided because, and I quote from Harold Holt's answer, Passengers' names are, not, are recorded only so that the aircraft may be safely and properly loaded. After a flight is completed, the list of names is of no value and is not retained for long. 
For similar reasons, no records are kept of the places to which their aircraft in the VIP flight have taken VIP passengers. The answer to these questions are therefore not available. Also, the cost of operations by number 34 squadron is inextricably linked, included in the overall costs of running the RAF base Fairburn, which has several other, uh, several other units, and of maintaining the RAF as a whole. The cost of individual flights cannot therefore be given. Although an the last part of the answer given by Holt was, and I quote again, although as explained above, it is not possible to set out in detail the various specific purposes which VIP flights have been used. The purpose of transporting the Governor-General and Ministers is to permit them to attend to government business and to discharge their public duties in places and at times which would be impossible if they were tied down by particular airline schedules. Distinguished visitors carried by the squadron's aircraft are mentioned in the answer to question two. The leader of the opposition has also used an aircraft from the squadron during the last 12 months. And this was the kicker. It was one thing for politicians and foreign dignitaries to use the planes, but it was a whole other thing for other passengers to use it as well. And again, it would, it would actually end up raising more interest and possible controversy, depending on the, who the passengers were that were on these planes. The fact was, was that Harold Holt had simply not answered the question. And there was more, even worse. According to Peter Howson, the Minister for Air, who had drafted the answer for the Prime Minister and his department, the answer given by Holt had been changed for one drafted for him by his own department. Particularly, particularly the sentence for similar, particularly all the sentences in part three. According to Hans, according to Howson, the sentence about the passengers' names being only recorded so that the aircraft may be safely and properly loaded and not being kept had been added by the Prime Minister's Department and had been changed from Howson's, Howson's original draft response. But Howson, despite believing this statement to be untrue, did not challenge his Prime Minister. There was a real problem here now, that there was in fact more information available than what had been included in the Prime Minister's answer. Harold Holt had made the cardinal mistake of any political leader in a democracy. He had misled Parliament, probably unknowingly, but he'd still misled Parliament. This would have, could have gone largely unnoticed and simply forgotten about. 
But unfortunately for Holt, it would not go unnoticed by Vince, Vince Claire Gare, the leader of the deal, the leader of the Democratic Labor Party, or DLP. Vince Gare had been a member of the Australian Labor Party and Premier of Queensland until his expulsion from that party in 1957. He would eventually join the DLP and would be elected as a senator in 1964. The DLP senator had spent a long time in politics and he would not miss a chance to score a hit against his old party. He would ask a similar question again on 13 May 1966 to Denham Henty, the government leader in the Senate. The question, though, was specifically about Arthur Corwell's flight to Perth in the VIP aircraft in 1965. The answer from Henty confirmed that Corwell had indeed travelled to Perth, but, and I quote, particulars of passengers carried and not available. According to Henty, this answer was provided by the Prime Minister, Harold Holt. It was now the Senate that was being misled as well. But as far as Holt was concerned, the matter was finished. There was no additional details that could be provided. Peter Howson had still not advised his Prime Minister that his answers were not correct. But Holt had been relying on the advice of his own department, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. The Secretary, the Secretary John Bunting, would be a key advisor to Holt. Bunting was an experienced public servant who had been very close to the former Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies. I have no answer as to why Mr Bunting would allow the misleading answer to be provided. The government had been reluctant to provide information before on the VIP flights. Bunting may have thought that he was following what had been done previously, that is, providing as little information as possible. But Peter Howson he knew that the more detailed records did exist, could have challenged his Prime Minister. According to Howson, that, that when he became the responsible minister, he, that he started to insist that records be kept that included information on details of the passengers. According to Howson, previous, previously, ministers and VIPs had been able to take passengers with no knowledge from the minister concerned. Houser would claim that his departmental secretary, Titch, which was his nickname, Titch McFarlane, had, contact Prime, had contacted the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet at, at his own direction to advise them that an error was made in the answer and to rectify it. Howson told Holtz afterwards that his answer was, and I quote, a deliberate distortion. The government and opposition were, were quite prepared to let these questions lapse and for the issue to naturally die out, but it would not. The DLP, who now held the balance of power in the Senate, smelt a rat. A deal between the government and the opposition Labor Party to cover up their use or misuse of these VIP aircraft. By September 1967, the questions being asked in the Senate were starting to become more detailed, with questions being asked about the catering on the aircraft, particularly alcohol. But the government led by Harold Holt were determined not to, to not release the information or just deny its existence. But the circumstances had changed since 1966. Lionel Murphy, a barrister in Queen's Council, had been point, appointed as the new Labour leader in the Senate. On Tuesday, the 26th of September 1967, 
Murphy in the Senate would bluntly say, and I quote, if the minister is reluctant to give the answers voluntarily, the Senate will take whatever steps are available to see it that the answers are brought forth, unquote. By the time the press had started to raise questions about Holt's family using VIP planes, it was now starting to get very serious. On October 4, 1967, in an attempt to defend the use of the VIP planes, Holt would actually give a fair speech in which he gave a logical and historical interpretation of the reason for the aircraft being used. He would actually make valid reasons for the aircraft being available for himself as Prime Minister, with the planes being a flying office, as Prime Minister put it, for the Prime Minister and other politicians who had to travel regularly around Australia. The speech, as good as it was, though, did not release additional records on the VIP flights that the Senate was after. Then, the Senate, with three government members, were across the floor, passing a motion that the government provide all relevant details of the VIP flights from 1 July 1966 to the 5th of October 1967. But Holt and his cabinet still resisted providing the documents. Howson would attend the cabinet meeting on the 12th of October, where he planned to circulate the passenger manifest which proved that the records demanded by the Senate actually existed. However, Bunting inexplicably made a decision to stop this. Bunting was actually crossing a very dangerous line by not providing the information that contradicted his Prime Minister's answers, answers which he had influenced. Meanwhile, on the 16th of October, there would be an important development that would lead to a resolution and would propel our little-known senator into the limelight. On the 16th of October, Denham Henty, the Liberal leader in the Senate, retired and will be replaced by Senator John Gray Gorton. Gorton, who was Minister, of the Edu who was Minister for Education at the time, was known for his directness. Upon his appointment, Gorton would be blunt with Harold Holt, on what he thought of the Senate's demands to see the VIP flight documents. He told, and I quote, the Senate had a right to such information, unquote. Yet a week later, the government was still denying the records, still, was still denying that the records did not exist. By this stage, Lionel Murphy, the Labour leader in the Senate, would give the government an ultimatum. Either produce the documents of the Senate was either produce the documents, or the Senate would summon the head of the Department of Air, Titch McFarlane. It was an extraordinary power that the Senate held, and this could be used to humiliate the Prime Minister. But to forestall this, Gold would make a bold and highly risky move. Even though McFarlane did not report to him, Gordon phoned McFarlane directly and confirmed that the records were available. Then, without consulting his Prime Minister, Gordon would table the complete records of the VIP flights and table them on the 25th of October, 1967. The records were detailed and included itineraries, the, author the authorisers of the travel, and the passenger details. Gorton's release of the records would con contradict statements made by Harold Holt and Peter Howson over the past 18 months. They had misled Parliament.
Curiously, however, despite the crisis, Howson was out of the country in Uganda where he was chairing the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association meeting that he was a part of. On the day before Gorton released the VIP records, Holt would make a statement on the VIP affair where he provided costings on the use of the VIP aircraft, but little else. The rest of his statement reiterated what he'd said before about the reasons for using the VIP aircraft. Gordon's release of the records the next day was humiliating for the Prime Minister, who was made to either look incompetent or dishonest. The flight records themselves released provided no surprise. There were no joy flights or champagne and caviar. But in the short term at least, Holt would face a no-confidence motion in the House of Representatives from a resurgent ALP led by Gough Whitlam. The blame game would then start internally within the government. House and the, mo- the responsible minister would be under the most pressure. He was still in Uganda at the time, and according to his diary, after discussions with McFarlane, his deputy secretary, that his written advice provided, his written advice provided the prime minister before he left for overseas had been again altered by the prime minister's department. On the sixth of November. 1967, after returning from overseas, Howson would visit the Prime Minister in Canberra to offer his resignation. As a responsible minister, it would be the logical thing to do. It would have given some closure to the affair, the affair and decreased the pressure on Holt. But the PM, the Prime Minister, did not accept Howson's resignation and Holt instead referred it to Cabinet for further discussions. The editorials in papers like the Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian were devastating in their criticism. In hindsight, there were mistakes and oversights by everyone involved. Holt, as as Prime Minister, appeared to have been reluctant to release any information. Howson, as Prime Minister for Air, had, as John Gorton would later say, told the PM, and I quote, what he wanted to hear rather than the truth, unquote. And while John Gordon would receive strong praise for releasing the records, his actions were highly exemplary, exemplary as he had authorised the release of the flight records with doubtful evidence that he had consulted with the Prime Minister or anybody else. How was this allowed to happen? Why was the Prime Minister not advised earlier by Peter Howson directly that his original answer was incorrect and in fact there were detailed manifests on the flight? Well, the answer to this is actually in Peter Howson's diaries. (laughs) And that's right. Peter Howson kept a diary from his time as a Member of Parliament and Minister from 1963 to December 1972, when he lost his seat. The diary entry of six, on the 6th of November is actually really enlightening. And I quote, I went through the whole story of the last year in a half detail by, in a half detail, by detail and explained part of the problems that had arisen due to the misunderstanding between the Prime Minister's Department and our, and our own, how in one case, the original case, the Prime Minister's Department had altered my original draft in such a way that I was believed 
that I was led to believe that they had told me that records which I knew to exist did, in their opinion, not exist. I was being told that although I knew them to exist, I was being instructed to say from that time on that they were not available. It was from that particular moment onwards that I had, in my opinion, been required to cover up the true situation, unquote. I mean, wow. <laughs> so what does all that mean? Well, the thing I take from it is that Howson thought he had a duty to cover up the original answer given by Holt that had been alleged, allegedly doctored by Jack Bunting. Howson may have believed that he was showing loyalty to the, to the Prime Minister by covering up the original mistaken answer. But it also seems almost implausible that Howson could have simply met with his Prime Minister earlier and told and told him about the records and corrected the Prime Minister. But to be fair to Howson, he was born and educated in what was at that time class and hierarchical Britain, and he may have been reluctant to break that chain of command. But this was a critical breakdown in communications within, within the government. As Prime Minister, Holt would have to take some responsibility for this. The key thing was a lack of understanding of the difference between the government admitting that the more detailed records existing and actually just point blank refusing to release the records. The government could have refused to disclose the records. Indeed, the previous Minister for Air, David Fairbairn, would claim in response to a question from Eddie Ward, the legendary ALP firebrand, that he would not disclose the information due to the amount of time and effort required to get the information. This was the answer that should have been given on May the 13th, 1966. Peter Howson should have confronted Holt far earlier and advised him directly that his original response to the question was incorrect. But instead, Howson would rely on his departmental secretary to liaise with Holt's Department of, Prime, of the Prime, Prime Minister and Cabinet. Holt should never have allowed this to drag on for over 18 months. Also, Holt as Prime Minister could have accepted Howson's resignation. He had been absolutely, he was again indecisive when he refused the resignation offered by Howson, instead made it worse by referring it to Cabinet. Now, if Holt was not going, if Howard Holt as Prime Minister was not going to accept Peter Howson's resignation, why would the Cabinet overturn that? Well, the release of the VIP records, flight records, would actually would take some pressure off the government as the flight records proved that the flights were actually properly authorised. There was no smoking gun, but the issue was secrecy and the inability of senior ministers, government ministers and the bureaucracy to provide factual advice to their Prime Minister. There was also confusion within the government to what information that the Prime Minister was willing to release. The Prime Minister's own department seemed to be withholding information on the VIP flights and the true level of details around the VIP flights. In the long run, it would be John Gorton who had shown himself to be bold and proactive when the situation demanded it. It would throw him into the limelight and would bode well for his future. 
For Harold Holt, it would throw more pressure onto his shoulders after what had been a difficult year for him. Rumbles within the Liberal Party began to surface, with dissatisfaction being expressed in his leadership. And it was ironic that Holt's consensus style of leadership was actually isolating him from his ministers and senior public servants. But poor old Harold Holt would be faced with another issue that would put him, him and his government under more pressure. The rift, that famous feud between the, between the Deputy Prime Minister and the leader of the country party, John Blackjack McEwen, and the Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party, Billy McMahon. But we'll have to talk about this next week. Now for the book report. I have two books to recommend. Firstly, The House and Diaries. Well, I talked about this one previously. This is an absolute gold for me because it's first-hand commentary from Peter Housen on the events and the records that occurred during that period. These diaries provide a lot of credibility to Housen's records of events, particularly when compared to his critics such as John Gorton. I thoroughly recommend it. And it's called The House and Diaries, The Life of Politics, released by the Viking Press in 1984. Well worth a read. I'd also like to secondly recommend the book The Life and Death of Harold, Harold Holt. This is written by Tom Frame and was a well-researched book on Holt's life and particularly his time as Prime Minister. I, find it, I found it to be very objective as it pulls no punches and praises and criticises equally Holt's decisions as Prime Minister. A great read, and I thoroughly recommend it. I'd like to thank you for your, for your time today, and I look forward to our next episode, which I hope to get out either next week or the week after. Goodbye, and I hope everyone is keeping safe. All the best, and take care. Bye-bye.